You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Being tested for drugs has become a fairly accepted part of the workplace and fodder for a lot of jokes in movies and TV shows. Almost 25 years ago in the Seinfeld show, Elaine tested positive for opium because of the poppy seeds in her muffins. So she got Jerry's mother to help her with the next urine test. What are you going to do in there? What am I going to do in the bathroom? you got to do me a favor. Elaine, I really have... Hold on a second, Mrs. Seinfeld. I need your sample. You want my urine? I need a clean urine sample from a woman. So, as a result of your test being free of opium, I am reinstating you. But that's no laughing matter to many employers. Some have taken steps to ensure against tampering with urine specimens, including having someone watch employees urinate. Embarrassing, to be sure. But is it an invasion of privacy? Ohio's top court says it's not. By a closely divided 4-3 to three vote, the Ohio Supreme Court dismissed the cases of employees who sued their company for invasion of privacy after they were required to undergo a monitored urine test. Joining me is employment law expert Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. Tony, how did the court deal with the right to privacy argument? A couple of things that become very clear early on in the case, and one is that the right to privacy, which is an amazingly powerful right, varies, surprisingly enough, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There is no overarching federal constitutional right to privacy, at least not one that appears expressly in the United States Constitution. Some opinions have interpreted there to be privacy-like rights in the Constitution, but there's not the word privacy, and there isn't even in some respects an argument that the actual per se right to privacy exists, at least expressly stated in the U.S. Constitution. That's also true at the state level. And you can see in this opinion early on that the employees cited some cases from some other jurisdictions, including my state, for example, California, and the Ohio Supreme Court had no difficulty at all distinguishing and dismissing any consideration of those cases because, for example, the California case involved a right to privacy that is enshrined in the California Constitution. In fact, Article 1, Section 1 of the California State Constitution guarantees the people of the state of California a right to privacy. Ohio, by comparison, does not have such an expressed right to privacy. And that was a very important linchpin of this decision. What about the theory in the opinion that the employees had consented to the drug tests, despite the employees arguing that their consent wasn't voluntary because they could be fired for refusing to take the test? What the majority of this court said, and it was a four to three opinion with the chief justice, by the way, being in the dissent, what the majority said was that although the written disclosure form that the employee signed did not state that it would be a so-called direct observation drug test, meaning that their genitals could be seen by the person who was making sure that the drug test was taken correctly. The, The form didn't say that. However, once they arrived at the testing facility, they were told that. And obviously, before they actually were subjected to the test, they knew what was going to happen. And the fact that they continued on with the test and didn't just exit the building from the majority's point of view was consent. Now, that was questioned, of course, by the dissent who said, well, if it was consent, it was compelled consent because 
the employees knew or certainly believed that if they refused to take the drug test in the way that it was being administered, they could and probably would lose their jobs. And so the compulsion element was what the dissent focused on. But from the majority standpoint, there actually was consent. The dissent also said that an at-will relationship doesn't allow someone to commit intentional torts. So the dissent here felt that there was a violation of privacy or was it something else? They did say that. They said that there was a violation of privacy, and even the majority did concede that in an employment at-will situation, which you know basically means that an employer can terminate the employment for any reason, for so-called good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all, and so can the employee leave the employment for any reason at all. That's what an employment at-will relationship is. The majority conceded that there are some exceptions to that, including, for example, filing a workers' comp claim or filing a discrimination claim or saying that you've been harassed or discriminated against contrary to Title VII or to a state anti-discrimination law, you can't be terminated for having done any of those things, even if you are an at-will employee. And so in this case, what the dissent is saying is terminating somebody in the context that occurred here, which involved, said the dissent, an invasion of privacy is like one of those exceptions, meaning that it should be something that is a carve-out from the employment at will rule. The majority, on the other hand, felt the other way and made the determination that if you are an employee at will, you can be compelled to subject yourself to this kind of testing because essentially the reasoning of the majority is that the power to terminate, which the employer had to do at will, includes the power to compel somebody to subject himself or herself to such testing. Is this in line with what courts in other states have ruled, or does it depend on the state law? It's going to depend on the state law, and it certainly was teased out at the beginning of this opinion where the employee cited privacy protection cases from other jurisdictions, and the majority distinguished and indeed ignored basically those other state law cases on the ground that Ohio does not have in its constitution a guarantee of a right to privacy. And in fact, there's also not even a statutory right to privacy in the state of Ohio. There is what the majority somewhat dismissively referred to as a judge-made right to privacy, which arises in the common law, but that has never been placed either in the Ohio State Constitution or in the Ohio statutes. And so that's really the original issue here, I think, is that the people of the state of Ohio should, when the time comes, try to get a, a right to privacy enshrined somewhere either in the Constitution or in the statute books, because right now there isn't any expression of the right to privacy in the state of Ohio. And that's not that uncommon. That is relatively common throughout the 50 states. So just to be clear... Some courts in states that have rights to privacy have ruled that having someone watch you give a urine sample is an invasion of privacy. Correct. Again, there was a California drug testing case that was cited by employees in this case, the so-called Wilkinson case, and that was ignored by the Ohio State Supreme Court on the ground that California, unlike Ohio, does have an express right to privacy in its state constitution. It's in, it's in Article 1, Section 1 of the California State Constitution. There are other ways to ensure that the urine sample is authentic, like having someone dress in a gown, different things that they can do short of this. It seems extreme. Uh, 
Yeah, there is an analysis that you sometimes see in these cases, which is an inquiry takes place whether there is a less intrusive means accomplishing the same goal. Well, the example you give is one that certainly presumably was available. Uh, there are some federal regulations that are also cited uh, in the opinion and the dissent, especially saying that these are other ways in which uh, this same goal could have been accomplished and that would have been less intrusive from a privacy standpoint. But my sense from reading the majority's opinion was that it wasn't in the uh, frame of mind to be tinkering uh, with the machinery that was, was employed in this in this situation because of the very strong at-will presumption that exists under Ohio law. The employee says that she's going to file a motion for reconsideration. Is there any indication that, that she might fare better with a motion for reconsideration? I doubt it. Uh, as I said, this was it looks like it was fairly hard fought litigation. Uh, the court was badly split. I mean, it could not, it, you know, one more vote one way or the other uh, would have made the difference. Uh, there were four justices that voted um, in favor of the employer. And by the way, the, the Supreme Court reversed the uh, fifth district. So actually, the employee had won in the appellate court below, I believe. Um, but the dissent uh, consisted of uh, three justices. So one justice, one way or the other, could have made the difference. And Chief Justice O'Connor was among the three dissenting justices. Four states prohibit observed collection, Connecticut, Maine, Rhode Island, Vermont. From what you see in your practice, is observed collection becoming the way that, that employers verify I suspect not. I mean, this, this struck me as being um, unusual uh, in that regard, especially since there are also legitimate means by which this kind of testing can be accomplished without engaging in this direct observation method. So uh, my sense is that, that there isn't a trend toward this, and I suspect that, again, I haven't done any empirical studies of this, but my sense is that fewer testing facilities would use this or would continue to use this on a going forward basis. This this was obviously a lot of litigation over, you know, a couple of drug tests. So I would imagine all things being equal, the employer and the testing facility are, are, are more than happy not to have this recur. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they might get sued again. Somebody may try to figure out a federal right that they can uh, rely upon that, as far as I can tell, was not considered by the Ohio courts in this situation. So that might be another uh, method of attacking this. Since, you know, drug tests have become more and more accepted, are there a lot of cases of employees challenging drug tests and the way they're administered? Most of those battles were fought uh, 10 and 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, the employer won most of them. Uh, and there's been a lot of litigation about this, for example, in California. So I'm, I'm most familiar with that. The way the rules more or less have settled in California is that an employer may subject an employee to a drug test if there is a reasonable suspicion that the employee is under the influence uh, and the employer has to be able to articulate what the factors are that uh, led it to conclude that the employee might be under the influence. And that could be dilated pupils, uh, slurred speech, you know, parking in a strange way, whatever, whatever it might be. So employers can do testing under those circumstances and not necessarily direct observation testing. I think uh, I have not heard of that occurring with any frequency in California. Uh, the second major uh, category of testing that occurs in California 
involve situations where the employee is in a safety-sensitive position. So, for example, you have somebody who's driving a forklift around or is otherwise dealing with very heavy machinery uh, that could endanger the employee or others. Uh, under those circumstances, an employer has uh, relatively broad uh, discretion to engage in uh, drug testing under those circumstances. Where things get complicated are in states like California, for example, where we now have legalized marijuana. And so that right is is continuing to butt up against uh, the employer's right to do drug testing. And then you add in the additional fact that um, marijuana, for example, is still illegal on, on the federal level. And so that can differ from federal administration to federal administration. The Obama administration was not particularly interested in enforcing uh, those laws. The, the Trump administration has been much more uh, interested in that. And so um, there are a lot of different and competing points of view with respect to this, and it is confusing for employers and employees alike. Thanks, Tony. That's Anthony Ancini, a partner at Proskauer Rose. Dozens of workers are suing their employers over alleged violations of the first U.S. federal paid leave law. The Families First Coronavirus Response Act was designed to give options to workers who have to take leave because of COVID-19. A Bloomberg Law analysis found that 72 coronavirus leave lawsuits have been filed in federal courts by largely blue-collar workers, and those numbers are expected to spike in the fall. Joining me is Erin Mulvaney, Bloomberg Law Senior Reporter. Tell us one or two of the stories of some of the workers who took leaves and were fired or weren't granted leaves. Sure. Since the uh, Families First Coronavirus Response Act has been passed, um, there have been about six dozen lawsuits that we found that have been filed accusing employers of either not giving workers the leaves that they um, deserved under the law or retaliating, essentially, against the workers for being fired. So by way of background, that's basically what this federal law protects against. A lot of the cases that we found were from blue-collar workers such as some that I thought were, the allegations were particularly shocking, were a scrap metal worker in Maryland had quarantined himself um, for three weeks after he was hospitalized with COVID, and he claims he was fired for that. A New Jersey janitor experienced a sore throat weakness after he was exposed to the virus, and he stayed home waiting for his test results, and then he was fired for that. Um, This was a pretty common one as well. A legal assistant asked to telework when her son's school closed, um, and she was fired. These are the kind of examples. About half were fired for having COVID-like symptoms and quarantining. About a third were the kind of school or caregiver situations. Those are some of the examples of the kind of cases that we've seen under this. So there are lots of instances where parents have to take care of their child because daycare or schools are closed and they're not given leave. Absolutely. There are a lot of cases, about a third of the cases that we found in our analysis were from parents who um, were requesting this family leave to take care of their children when their, their children's school closed down or, you know, if, if their children got sick. I will say working parents can tap about 10 additional weeks of family leave under the law and it will be paid at two-thirds of their regular wages. So it's not the full wages. Let's say you're sick with COVID. How many weeks can you get 
off if your employer qualifies under the act? Uh, workers get two weeks of paid leave and at their regular earnings if they're experiencing COVID symptoms and seeking medical treatment or if I think a lot of people could understand when there were shutdowns, like government shutdowns and medical quarantine orders, that would be something you could claim as well if, if a you know, if an employer asks you to basically violate that. And then the the two only the two thirds of the typical salary is triggered with quarantining um, with a child or you know, if you have like maybe an elderly parent that you're caring for, that would be you would get two weeks of paid sick leave for that. As far as employers who are exempt, are healthcare companies exempted and therefore healthcare workers don't have access to this protection? There is a healthcare worker exemption um, under the Act, and the the DOL, the, the Labor Department, has issued some guidance on that and. Somewhat open for debate. I noticed in the filings that there were still some people who worked in the healthcare industry who were filing these lawsuits, and it remains to be seen whether they'll be thrown out under the exemption or whether that the exemption was supposed to be for a specific type of healthcare worker. A lot of management sided employment attorneys will say it was crafted a little hastily and that exemption in particular wasn't necessarily clear. And it seems from your story like it's an uphill battle for management attorneys just trying to figure out the law. I think that will be the case with any new kind of federal blanket law that requires companies to comply with new standards that they never have before. This is the first federal paid leave policy in the country so that the country's ever had. And although it's limited in scope, it still has different, you know, exemptions and qualifications and notification requirements for employers. And, you know, especially if it's a smaller business that may not regularly get advice from an attorney, there are hurdles and hoops to jump through to avoid getting sued. These kinds of, of laws, I think, are often daunting for the average person. Are workers also confused about, you know, what their rights are? I would imagine a lot of workers aren't familiar with necessarily what they um, have a right to because if they didn't have a paid leave policy from their employer and they don't get notification about this, these new rights under um, this emergency act. And in a lot of, you know, low-income workers may not have the means to go out and file a lawsuit and they they might not know that they have these this kind of capability. Some of the worker advocates that I talked to said that they were getting flooded with a lot of questions about what they were entitled to, and especially when people were in these kind of difficult situations. And what, what they said is they said they were offering advice so that hopefully it wouldn't come to a lawsuit and more, you know, talking through with your employer or this new standards that they're required to follow. And so hopefully it could be resolved that way. That might be one reason for the relatively low number of lawsuits if employers and workers can kind of work together on this. To bring litigation. Erin, management attorneys are expecting a spike in cases in the fall. Is that because more workers are likely to become more familiar with the law? I, I did have some management attorneys who raised that concern that maybe there would be more awareness of the law in coming months. Um, it, it, the law expires on December 31st. So it would it would only be a matter of the next few months, but there, what's happening now is there are schools reopening, there are more businesses reopening, 
And that could both trigger more COVID symptoms, some health experts say, or health, um, health concerns, but also just the need for leave, you know, balance with parents or caregivers balancing a lot of um, new demands. And as the country kind of sets into the pandemic, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty and chaos and everybody was scrambling, but now they're trying to set into a new, albeit very different normal in, in the business community. So there is a suggestion that there could be a spike for various reasons. It could be that more workers become aware of it, but there really isn't strong evidence that that's the case necessarily at this point. What kinds of companies or what companies are being sued? Well, there are some limits again to that because it, there shouldn't be, there aren't, um, an employer with more than 500 workers is exempt from the law. And there are also some, um, exemptions for workers with 50 or less. And some of the big names that we saw, and they they were Kroger and Eastern Airlines and Holiday Inn, which people may may recognize, but they were mostly companies that you you might not have heard of necessarily, like uh, lawn care companies or cleaning companies that can you know work under some kind of um, name. Um, so it, it it wasn't necessarily things that you've heard of. You know, they might be kind of like this medium-sized business that falls into that area. What are the states that have the most claims against employers? Florida far and away outstripped the other states. It had the, the, the most cases. Uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania probably had the, the, they were kind of following. It was scattered around the country other than that, but Florida definitely stood out as the, the main state that saw these kind of claims. There's so much empathy or expressed empathy for healthcare workers. Is there any kind of legislation being proposed to cover healthcare workers in the same way that they cover other workers? It, it just seems unfair to be excluding them. I'm not sure how, what lawmakers are thinking as far as any aspect of, of this legislation, whether or not it will be renewed moving forward, um, and whether or not they'll tweak it with maybe more clarification on what the healthcare worker exemption is or what they were intending to do. Um, I have not personally heard of any proposal to um, provide something like this specifically for the entire healthcare industry, though, however. So what is the best guidance that attorneys are giving to employers that fall under the law? As usual with advice from attorneys, they always advise making sure that they are aware of what the law requires of them. Like they, they need to notify their workers of their new leave rights. And they also recommend collecting documentation when these requests are made, providing notice of their decision about granting or rejecting leave. Those things are important in the litigation process, even if they seem kind of procedural at an early stage. But, but I, I think this is an important point too. A lot of these lawyers that I talked to said, Keeping flexibility in mind in these like difficult situations is really important as a company outside of their uh, legal and you know making taking flexibility into account when they're balancing these decisions for their business and for their workers' needs. When you talk to people, what do they see as the biggest challenge coming up as kids return to school, as more businesses reopen? Is there an area or a type of of worker that they see more at risk of termination? I think the biggest 
fear would not be necessarily a type of worker, but maybe just a parent kind of having to balance a lot of difficult situations and maybe being treated differently than other workers in general and not, you know, really getting the leave that they, they are entitled to under this law. Um, I, I think that would probably be what I heard the most of. Otherwise I think there isn't necessarily a particular industry that this would be affecting. I think early in the pandemic month, there were, probably it would be more the workers that were going back, like in manufacturing and more essential workers. And now that more businesses are opening up, I think there is some potential for more workers to be affected, maybe office workers who were once teleworking and people like that in like across industries, honestly. What stage are these lawsuits at? Are, is, are they mostly at the complaint phase? Have they reached the answer phase? They are mostly very early in their litigation process. Most of them have been filed or there were some that we found that were voluntarily dismissed, which could suggest a settlement was reached by both parties. And there was one case that did have a motion to dismiss. The the company tried to get the lawsuit thrown out and a judge rejected um, that motion. So it'll be moving forward. That early kind of procedural motion usually indicates that the claim had some merit and could be moving forward. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Aaron. That's Bloomberg Law Senior Reporter Aaron Mulvaney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.